I'll put it on Do Not Disturb so that the weather doesn't disturb me. Oh, smart. What about the kitty? Will the kitty still disturb you, though? Can you put cats on Do Not Disturb? Put the cat on I mean, I think that's because closing the door. Oh, man, I just finished my decaf and I still have a headache. It's annoying. Yeah, it's, yeah. Probably because of caffeine withdrawals. I decided to have a night off drinking, so I'm on my second glass of wine. It didn't work very well. Also, I'm eating a brownie made by one of our listeners, so that's nice. Oh, winner. That's awesome. All right, folks, welcome back to the Affix podcast, the podcast where we talk about Diablo of all things, but <laughs> mostly we talk about the musings of the internet intelligentsia, big blog posts, uh, sometimes big books as well. And uh, we also make silly little bets that we love to resolve because we're Aussies and we love our coffee and we bet small stakes coffees and win big. One day we should bet on two flies crawling up a wall. Also, I just want to say thank you every week for actually remembering to introduce us because I'm always so excited to talk to you about stuff that I like. I just want to launch straight into it. You're always there, keeping me grounded, making sure the listeners know what we're about. Any new listeners, welcoming them along. I think it's very helpful. I'm glad someone's on the ball. Well, it only took me like, I don't know, 12 episodes to figure out maybe I should do that. But, you know, we'll get there. Typically open with feedback to ourselves. And coming out of last week, I don't really have too much. I mean, first up, what a great conversation. A lot of laughs. I was especially amused by how we opened our discussion of Robin Hansen with Chris just like laying out how he's crazy and me defending him flat out. And then we got to the discussion of his actual writings and I was saying his writings are really naive and Chris is like, no, no, they're really smart. I think he's got some good points. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think we made this point repeatedly last time, but he is one of many writers with whom I want to violently disagree, but he's very persuasive and changes the way I think. Yeah, it was just funny seeing, you know, first out I started defending him, then switched to attacking him and Chris completely reversed (laughs) that. That was nice. (laughs) Yep, definitely the mark of someone who makes us think. I think that that can definitely be said of Robin Henson. He's talking about aliens again on his latest blog post, so there's no need. Aliens. Aliens. Cool. <laughs> the other thing is just a commitment to myself going forward. In last week's episode, I got really frustrated with myself for referring to Simon Sinek yet again. So I like got on Google Scholar and I tried to look up other writers that I could, you know, reference as like espousing those ideas. Yeah, didn't someone originally come up with the Infinite Game that wasn't him? Well, there's a different guy for the Infinite Game, but I'm never referring to Simon Sinek in terms of the Infinite Game. I'm mostly talking to him about Start With Why. Mm -hmm. Didn't you like that book more? Yeah, yeah. Well, I actually haven't read that book. I've just watched his TED Talk on it and I really liked his TED Talk on Start With Why. But uh, yeah, really what I reference in most of that stuff is around the purpose of motivation and meeting in work and that kind of thing. So I'm going to commit instead of referencing Simon Sinek, because unfortunately there's just 50 million writers out there about meaning and motivation. I'm just going to say in the future, the meaning and motivation literature instead of Simon Sinek, because he doesn't deserve all the glory for what these hundreds of different scholars are doing. Did he not invent motivational speaking? I thought he invented it. I mean, he probably acts like he does. Okay. All right, no more Simon Sinek. He's done. We're done with him. It's over. It's done. It's done. Cool. And then it's just been week after week of me recommending people check out the Econ Talk podcast. But yet again, there was another great one this week just gone with Katie Milkman. So she works with Angela Duckworth, who I had also previously mentioned and said be a bit dubious of. Author of Grit, right? Yes, that was Angela Duckworth. Behavioral scientist Katie Milkman of the Wharton School talks about her book, How to Change, with Econ Talk host Rust Roberts. 
it was very good. Like the pushback that Russ had on general social psychology and that kind of thing. And they had a quick discussion on the replication crisis and how that kind of applies to her own work and how to factor that in looking forward and all that kind of stuff. It was just a really fun conversation. So quick shout out to that one. Yeah, he's good. He gets good guests. Strong strike rate. Really interesting people and not just the typical book tour kind of people that you hear on every podcast. Totally. And then I didn't really have anything further. So, Chris, what about yourself? I've got a couple. We need to settle Melange, which is the app that we're going to try to put our bets on. Uh, And I knew I'd heard the word before, and it's the spice. If you've read June, it's the spice that allows the navigators or the telepaths to be able to navigate and telepath. The spice must flow. And it's to do with predicting the future. So I guess that's sort of the goal of these bet things. I mean, in theory, these bets that we do are descended from the, the idea of prediction markets, where the stock market is a prediction market of how good a company is going to be in the future. And that is what people are willing to buy and sell it for it. But there's this idea that if we could get enough critical mass of prediction markets of when the next global pandemic will be, or when we'll move over to electric cars or something like that, that we could actually get better predictions by harnessing a whole lot of people with actual skin in the game, making bets against each other, adding information to the pool. So... Yeah, it's kind of a mix of having skin in the game as well as just the wisdom of the crowds, right? Yes, which is precisely the combination of skin in the game and wisdom of the crowds. I think when you just ask a bunch of people wisdom of the crowd, they don't care necessarily and you get silly answers like that bull weighs 10 million tons and then if you average that out, you get a bull that only weighs 1 million tons but it's not actually a very good guess. When they've got skin in the game because they're actually betting, then you know they're more incentivized to make a good guess. Even if it's wrong, it's at least their best guess. Very nice. And we did discuss prediction markets a bit early on the days of this podcast, and then I got lazy. So whatever. Now we've just got an app that doesn't actually take your bets. It doesn't actually like you don't have to put money on it or anything like that. It's just a record keeper for any like silly bets you make with your friends, which is why it's perfect for our use. Yeah. I mean, I think you can put money on it, but it is up to you to agree to it. So we always just bet one and it's one coffee, not one dollar. Yeah. One day I'm going to trick you and make a bet with two coffees. (laughs) You do bet like a dollar amount, but you never actually put the money into escrow. Correct. It's purely just like theoretical. Yeah. No one's going to enforce that other than the people making the bet. Yeah. It's not linked to your credit card or your PayPal account. So melange is the spice. Melange is the spice, not a French word, as I so confidently predicted last time. It sounds so French. Yeah, it's probably French inspired. And then the other, I just wanted to follow up on Enrico Fermi, of Fermi Paradox fame, which came up last time. He first invented the nuclear reactor and was part of the Manhattan Project. And I just kind of want to talk about the Manhattan Project because, I mean, not only was it amazing science, but the amount of famous, ridiculous people that have come out of it, like, that I don't even remember being associated. I'm just like, well, dude was alive in the 40s and ridiculously smart. <laughs> Probably he was on the Manhattan Project. And I was right, right? And it was sort of a guess in the back of my mind. And yep, he totally was. So, Feynman... Uh, John von Neumann, Oppenheimer, obviously, like all these brilliant people. And I just wonder whether we still have that today. Could we make a Manhattan Project? Are they only famous because they were in the Manhattan Project? Was there a unique concentration of genius around that time? Are all the geniuses now in Silicon Valley making billions of dollars? Are they now crypto lords being Vitalik Buterin and Satoshi Nakamoto? Where'd they go? It's an interesting point. I think the geniuses we see these days are definitely well remunerated like being in Silicon Valley, creating those things. And also like we just see them because they are rewarded. But a lot of these guys, like Feynman before he got onto the Manhattan Project, I know he was only like 20 something, but he was just working in like a chemistry lab for some industrial manufacturer and working on like really boring optimization stuff. So is it the fact that he got to go into the Manhattan Project and then became like, a very 
public speaking academic. That's why we think he's famous and why he's like such a genius maybe. rather than... Maybe it was just the ultimate old boys club, like the network that you form at the Manhattan Project really sort of enhances your ability to display your genius on the world stage. And there's lots of geniuses that smart that never get those opportunities. It's possible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's different types of genius, right? Like those guys are definitely academic geniuses and pushed the boundaries and like were enabled by government to push the boundaries using their academic genius. But the genius that we recognize today is very different in terms of entrepreneurial spirit, etc. Yep, making Dogecoin go up and or down, depending on your mood. It's a certain type of genius that it takes to do that. Very charismatic genius. Very charismatic genius. I mean, fine ones one's very charismatic as well. And, and that's truly a genius. Like, he doesn't feel like a guy who was pretty smart <laughs> that got a limelight. And we're going to have to have a little digression, because if you haven't read Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, it is one of my favorite biographies of all time. And, like, there's a bit where, what is it? Someone's trying to teach him to play the drums, and then he's trying to teach them nuclear physics and he's like i picked up the drums instantly and was the world's best drummer within the space of about five seconds and he just never could quite get the hang of physics so probably i'm a terrible teacher and he's a great teacher we'll never know And i'm like no Feynman, you are like an absolute ridiculous genius and you can pick up anything you put your mind to it is very obvious over the course of this book that that is how that rolls <laughs> yeah i'm gonna second that i think i was the one who got you onto that book what mm. a fantastic book what a fantastic book. I mean, definitely a bit misogynist, but <laughs> still a fantastic book. All right, we're going we're gonna to do the thank you, Mr. Feynman comment section because, yes, I can't remember. What is it? The bit that like, oh, and now I treated the woman like garbage. And I'm like, that was really mean. I'll never, ever do that again. And then three scenes later, he's in the street car. And he's like, well, you just got to treat them like garbage because that's, that's how you make them like them. You just really got to be mean to all the ladies. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Not a role model. Not a person I admire universally, but... Yeah, I've got, to, I've got to tell my... Can I tell my favourite Feynman story? Because I just love Go. it so much. Do it. He's just come off the Manhattan Project and he's a genius. And I don't think the Manhattan Project has reached its finality yet. But he's over uh, looking at a nuclear reactor. So, you know, he's good at splitting atoms. They're trying to split atoms to make power. And, like, he's gone on a, a cross-country flight and he's red-eye, like, got there at 6am, didn't sleep at all because he was on a flight from the 40s, which was not a very comfortable plane, I've got to imagine. And they they spread out the diagrams of the nuclear reactor so that he can have a look at them. And they're just poking around and here's where this goes and there's where this goes. And he sees these little, little things. They're like a circle with a plus sign in them. And he's like, what are they? Are they windows? Are they valves? Oh, my God. I should have asked this at the beginning. And like he's been explained for like half an hour and he like doesn't know what one of the most common symbols on this plot is because he just hasn't been paying attention. And so he's like, whatever. I'm just going to have to bite this bullet. So I'm just going to have to ask a stupid question and then they'll laugh at me and say how misinformed I am and we can all move on. And so he just points at a completely random valve in a completely random corner of the thing. And he's like, what if this valve gets stuck? Expecting them to say, oh, Mr. Feynman, they're windows. Have you not been paying attention? And they're like, they have a look or like... And they get put a puzzled look in there and they're like, my God, Mr. Feynman, you're right. If that valve jams, the entire reactor will go critical. How did you pick it up so fast? Yeah. And maybe that's why we think Feynman's smart, just because of that story. Spread his genius far and wide. Uh, yeah, what a classic. I, I cannot do anything but recommend that book. It's extremely fun. Almost tempted to read it again. I have a few books that I sort of want to read, but I'm not really getting into any of them. Maybe I'm just going to read that book again. We'll do an episode on that. I think that's a solid choice. Except I've blown my best anecdote, so where are we going to go? What are we going to do now? There's plenty of others in there. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. That was a tension I did not expect to go on. I don't even know where that started out. Manhattan Project. We were, t we were wondering about Fermi last episode because the Fermi oh, paradox course. we talked about. And I'm like, I bet, he, I bet he's Manhattan Project. Is he? Is he? And then I had to do the research. Yeah. Fermi's also famous as... Uh, a reference for Fermi calculations, right? So just like guesstimating yes, how many, how many piano, piano tuners, tuners there are in, in Chicago. York and 
whatever both <laughs> in x city you could use the algorithm generally like it's a generalizable algorithm smart guy yeah possibly not as smart as john von neumann from right here but pretty smart now i want to look it up was it fermi or was it someone else who calculated the megatons of a atomic bomb by like dropping a piece of paper and seeing how far it got blown back by the shockwave well no i haven't even heard of that story oh, I follow up for the next up episode now. Yep, all right. We'll we'll talk to that one next episode. There we go. Awesome. Guaranteed follow-up topic. Anything else? One little bit of listener feedback, or maybe a listener point of confusion, and I feel like if one listener's confused, maybe several are. But we were talking about seeking facts and like trying to make your map most closely mapped to the territory when we talked about scout mindset a couple of weeks ago. And they tried to bring up the point that facts change. So they brought up my grandfather, who, you know, when he was a lad and learning the facts, the atom, the electron was the smallest thing of unit matter. And, you know, the facts changed. And now we have quarks and subatomic particles or sub-subatomic particles. I guess sub, an electron is a subatomic particle, right? Yes. And so I just want to make the point, and maybe I can make a make you discuss epistemology and what truth is, uh, because no. that is not a fact. <laughs> no? Too much for a Monday night? It's too hard. Anyway, no, go ahead. We'll see how we go. So I guess the point is that the fact that something changed in a textbook does not mean the fact changed. Quarks didn't suddenly come into existence when we discovered them. They were always there. And this is what, you know, trying to make your map match the territory should help. Like, probably what really smart people write down in textbooks is a good start of your basis of reality. But if what you're observing doesn't match those espoused facts, then you should be updating and working out what reality is really doing. And that's how we discovered quarks, right? That some observations that if this was the smallest possible thing we would expect didn't happen. So we had to go a layer deeper. So trying to find out the truth is really, really hard because it's really, really complicated and deep. And the truth is not just what someone else wrote down. It's not what a journalist wrote down. It's not what a scientist wrote down. The truth is the truth. But I also don't know what the truth is. So when you just try to define knowledge and we can go into justified true belief, I'm not even sure that that cuts it. It's tricky. Yeah, it's very hard. And I would say keeping a fluid mindset and being willing to constantly update is probably the only way to continue to progress in our current state of society. Yeah, when we seem to discover new things fairly regularly or have old doctrines torn down or new doctrines built, which, you know, may or may not be correct this time around. Yeah. How much do we forget, I suppose, is another part as well. How many of the facts do we forget? This has been a big theme in the economic writings on inflation lately. (laughs) The great forgetting. The great forgetting, which everyone's very worried about. Knowing truth. Truth is uh, something to be sought, not necessarily something to be held. Yeah, and not something that you can find in a textbook necessarily. And I don't mean to call this listener out. Like, I'm sure if they're thinking this, then many people are thinking this. But yeah, the fundamental truth, I think, is the way reality actually is, not how we currently perceive it. And understanding the difference between how you perceive reality right now and what reality it actually is, is the first step to, you know, finding that deeper truth. Yep. Nice. So we've got a very quick discussion and a very Australian discussion. Says you. (laughs) I have thoughts with a capital T. Oh, fun, fun. So the basis of this discussion is Australian legislation. So apologies to any international listeners, but I think we might touch on a few points that are kind of more generalizable in the conversation anyway. And you know what? It's just fun to learn about other cultures, however they run. But if you want to listen to some stuff that's not quite as localized, then skip right ahead to about 35 minutes in and we'll hit the next topic. So we had a question from a listener asking us to discuss our thoughts on the implications and ramifications of the proposed Your Super, Your Future scheme. I just have to briefly correct you. We had a question from a patron. And uh, Ooh, these patron. are the kind of questions that we tend to answer more often. Oh, there we go. So from a patron. Lovely, lovely. So for anyone outside of Australia, superannuation is what would be generally in the finance world 
called a defined contribution pension plan. So you retire and then you get to draw down on all these forced savings that the government makes your employer pay into a pension fund, which has certain tax advantages, gets taxed at 15% on the way in and doesn't pay any taxes on the earnings. Does it not pay? No, it, it does pay 15%, 15% there as well. Pays 15% on earnings, but doesn't pay any taxes on withdrawal. And it's also ridiculously, ridiculously locked up. Like it takes basically you being on your deathbed to get that money before you turn 65 or hit retirement age. Apologies for that. Chris. That's all right. Yes, it does. That is how we have withdrawn some super. Yes. Would that be unique in the world? Like I know that a 401k would be the closest match for any American listeners that you can sacrifice some of your salary into a tax advantaged account. But I do believe you can withdraw that money as long as you're willing to take the tax hit on the way out pretty much at any time. In Australia, it is just completely illegal. Yeah. I think there's like some funny ways to get around it. Slightly easier from KiwiSaver from what I know of New Zealand, but it is more locked up in New Zealand than it is in uh, the 401k or Roth system in the US. But yeah, they're the only systems I actually know of, so I can't yeah, really I talk too widely. England or Europe does. I'm curious. But it, it certainly seems somewhat unique to Australia. Yeah. So, yeah, forced savings that your employer has to pay into a pension fund on top of your base salary. So it is 9% of your salary, which is perhaps 9.5. Oh, 9.5. Yeah. And what is it? Each Labor government edges it up by about 0.25% and each Liberal government tries to work out more ways that you can withdraw it. Yeah, pretty the, much. Uh, roughly the deal as I've seen it in my lifetime. I think the goal that it gets is that it gets to 15%, 14%. Something like um, that, yeah. was introduced at five or six in an, as a way when Australians' wage was not growing. And so they added this on top as a way to force wages up, sort of, I guess, which seemed to work. And the idea was that to have a retirement, if you work from the age of like 25 to 65-ish, that's 40 years, if you save 15% of your income during that time, you should be able to have a comfortable retirement without any government pension. So this would entirely make your own pension. The government would no longer support you other than in, I don't know, maybe you've had a life where you haven't worked, you've been a stay-at-home mum the whole time and then your partner's left you or died or whatever and you don't have anything. I'm sure the government would support you in that case. But I think the idea is that it replaces the old age pension. Yeah, generally. Like there'd still be disability pensions and there'd still be, you know, funding for the absolute poor who have no other income whatsoever. But in general, yeah, that's the expectation to yeah. greatly ease the burden of, yeah, welfare provided to pensioners, essentially. Yeah. And so no one's there yet because it got introduced in the late 90s, mid to late 90s. So is that right? What do you mean no one's there yet? Sorry, no one has lived their entire life in the superannuation scheme. Therefore, we have not re removed the old age pension in Australia. That is still something that all, all retirees are, have access to. Means tested or no? It is means tested. So if you have too much superannuation or investments outside of superannuation generally, your pension benefits do go down. But critically for that, your primary place of residence, the value of the house that you live in is excluded from it that. Is excluded now because Australian property is a funny place right now and always has been or has been for decades. Yeah. So sorry. Well, all I mean is that no 20-year-old started paying into superannuation in their 20s and has retired. So there's no one has had a lifetime of superannuation. So it's its ultimate goal of replacing the old age pension isn't there yet because a scheme like that takes at least, I guess, 40 to 45 years to come to fruition. Yeah. And I'd have to do a bit more research on when these things have come up to parliament. But I think that might also be part of why the inflation indexing on the pension has been somewhat lower than what you would uh -huh. normally see. But I think the pension has actually, like, has gone up more than you start, for example. So we do just uh, spoil the oldies. Yeah. Even in know. Australia, where it's not like you get the benefits of 
catering, like pandering to the oldies like you do in the US where you're dependent on voter turnout or whatever because sure. everyone in Australia has to vote. Mandatory voting, yeah, possibly. Some people are donkey voting, but yeah, we don't get the, well, old retirees don't have anything else to do, so they always vote and young people have to work so they don't bother. Everyone must vote or they face a fine. Yeah. I mean, I guess my point is like, what do you think of super? Because I just feel like that's a, an interesting discussion for our international audience, but possibly locally. Like I came out as a full-blooded libertarian, we should remove the state and just be in an anarcho-capitalist society, I think a couple of episodes ago. That's not actually true. I just <laughs> lean more that direction than I did when I was younger. But I actually really like superannuation. I think that you know, the pushback is it's your money and you should be able to choose to save or choose to invest it or choose to spend it as you like. But I really, really like the fact that, you know, you can't, you're forced to save a bunch of your money because I think that's a really good idea to have some retirement savings and the government stepping in and making you do that is a good thing. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I've expressed before that my parents ran their own business and never did any saving for their retirement. And at the present point in time, they are stuffed. They have to work when their bodies literally can't. And just to clarify for people here, superannuation, those mandatory contributions only apply if you are an employee. If you run your own business and you're just getting paid the profits, you don't actually have to pay into super funds. That's completely at your discretion. You still get the tax advantages, but it's not mandatory like when you're an employee and your employer has to pay that 9%. So forcing most people who don't run their own business but who may have a similar mindset to my parents to actually save, I think is probably a pretty good thing. Like maybe I'm a bit biased by my history on that front, <laughs> but there's a lot of people out there who just do not plan for the future whatsoever. And making them plan against their will sometimes, I think is net beneficial. Yeah. It's an interesting enforcement of the atomized individualism that characterized neoliberalism, uh, which maybe I've been reading some other articles lately. Because, <laughs> you know, go back maybe 100 years, maybe 200 years. I'm not quite sure how far you'd need to go back. But, you know, still currently in the a lot of the Eastern world, it'll just be your problem. Your parents don't save for retirement because your their young, healthy son is going to work and take care of them. And that may be their plan anyway. <laughs> but we've sort of moved away from that. That may be how it turns out, yeah. And it goes to my comment a few weeks ago about multi-generational households and that kind of stuff and how you set that up and how it's, at least from my experience, feels less prevalent as time progresses much, I don't think it's just your experience. That seems much less prevalent. Yeah, yeah. Even though it seems like it should be more prevalent with, you know, the costs of housing, etc. And aging populations, maybe. Yeah. Maybe that means it seems should seem less prevalent. Maybe when you have 10 kids, at least one of them is willing to put up with you. But when you only have two kids, <laughs> sometimes you luck out and you better hope that you've got a good superannuation balance. That's an interesting way of putting it. <laughs> there you go. I don't know. Just a thought. Like the idea of a retirement scheme that the elderly can retire and not work and expect to live another 30 years is not very common throughout human history, right? If you can't work, you need someone else to support you. You don't just have a big bank of savings unless you're the king, I guess. Yeah, I think the other interesting part of it is a lot of these things were funded previously to the superannuation scheme by defined benefit pensions. And that leaves you really, really contingent on your employer and yes. can incentivize a lot of lock-in. I still know people who are on a defined benefit plan and uh, yeah, when restructures are going around and that kind of thing kind of forces their hand to not be as flexible as they would like. So even though, you know, we're saying in one way that superannuation deprives us of liberty, in another way, it enables liberty by totally freeing you up. Yeah, I mean, not even restructure. I know I've talked to people at companies with a defined benefit plan, and this is not that long ago. I've never had the opportunity to enroll in one, but people who are in a defined benefit plan who just feel like, you know what, I'd really like to look for work outside of this company, but 
I would be giving up so much because all I've done is contribute to my defined benefit plan that the payment that I would get out if I left this company is dwarfed by the retirement that I could expect if I stay with them until I'm at retirement age. Yeah. And I would say generally as well, defined benefit plans leave you so contingent on the ongoing... Yeah, the ongoing operations. Yeah. Which they did put in a lot of laws to make the pension plans pretty protected, but there's a whole lot of horror stories of takeovers and bankruptcies and whatever, and like your whole pension just evaporates. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, there's been a lot of regulation to make it safer, but... Mm. Yeah. So I think superannuation has numerous benefits. And I think perhaps I quite like the diffuseness of the power. I think where I'm more libertarian perhaps and where I'm more skeptical of government is where they try to actually just pay for a bunch of services and try to run a bunch of services on their own. And some they're good at or it's necessary, like the military or whatever. But the fact that, you know, I can still actually choose where my superannuation is invested. And if I really want to go crazy, I can run my own self-managed super fund and invest in fine cars and art. Fine cars. I may be, I may have a plan. We'll get back to your listeners. <laughs> means I mind it much less because I think that it still allows a lot of the individual preferences to be satisfied and markets to continue to work rather than just putting a big glob of money behind something. But it does create a big glob of money, which is what this Your Super, Your Choices is about. Yeah, definitely. So as with any government scheme where they're incentivizing anything, there's going to be a bunch of people who come in and do a little bit of regulatory capture and extract some rents from you where you're forced to do something. So unfortunately, what we've seen in the past is superannuation funds, well, while they do have extra overheads and burden to comply with regulation they charge a lot of money like there is a lot of super funds where you are just defaulted into joining that super fund when you join your employer and that super fund really takes advantage of it by charging you a mint yes yep high fees low service yep so what this kind of proposed legislation is trying to do is make that harder so no more when you first join an employer do they get the opportunity to just default enroll you in their super fund. If you have enrolled in a different super fund in the past, that is your default now. So you don't end up with five different super funds or I had three at one point when I was uh, weirdly forced to join one because I did some contracting for a university and they're allowed to make you not really? join your chosen one. It was crazy. That's irritating. And then I had another super fund from prior to that and blah, blah, blah. So consolidating them all saves you a lot in terms of different management fees, right? Because all these different super funds have you... Yeah, yeah. Like they charge you... They're charging you every year. Yep. And a lot of them what used to be automatically enrolling you in insurance as well. They're like, oh, we know what's best for you, so we're just going to enroll you in all our most expensive insurance products. So you've got five sets of life insurance, five sets of total and permanent disability insurance, five sets of income protection insurance. Crazy. So they'd really extract the money out of you that way. So by getting rid of those unintended multiple super accounts and making it harder to get that money diffusely spread that should you know save taxpayers a bit of money which is i think a good thing in general just means you have to be careful you still have to pay attention to who your first superannuation fund was i definitely know one of the employers i had had a special superannuation fund that was run by their company and it was really 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 low fees while you were with the company but if you changed employers they jacked those way up yeah, again, and I think that's the problem with the super funds. Like, I think the benefit of superannuation is you can just not think about retirement and be completely short-sighted, as some people are, and you will still have a nest egg saved for your retirement that you can draw on. But the problem is, because you're not paying attention to that money, there's a whole lot of people who are out there going to exploit that and charge you a lot of money to do nothing because you're like, oh, I'm not really thinking about that money, so I'll just do whatever the default is. No one's going to rip me off too badly, right? Turns out they are. Yeah. Like this fact sheet from the government even says Australians have fees among the highest in the OECD for like pension fund fees. So they really? Yeah, right. Grim. 
One very interesting point that forced me to actually even go into the proposed legislation itself to look into is part of this proposed legislation is holding super funds accountable where they are providing underperforming products. So where yeah. they have like rates of return below a certain benchmark in the market or something like that. I like actually opened up the legislation itself and it doesn't give you any information whatsoever on what those benchmarks would be or how it's going to be. It's basically just saying the government regulator will figure out what these benchmarks are and really? you have to just comply with them. And if you fail to meet them, you're no longer allowed to enroll any new members in that super fund product whatsoever. Yeah, so it doesn't shut you down, but it sure caps your growth. It caps your growth to literally zero or probably negative. Yeah, exactly. So it's a big stick, but it's a very ambiguous stick on how it can be wielded. Yeah, it's very tough. Like not even the efficient market hypothesis, but just like math says that on average, everyone's going to get average returns because that's tautologically true. So if you go for a high variance account where you can get someone who gets above average returns, you invest in CSL in the 80s or whatever, then there's got to be another fund manager who doesn't do that, who has the opposite returns at the opposite end of the spectrum. And I can definitely see that that's a problem, but it's sort of, it seems like a mathematical necessity. Yeah. So I would love to see some proposals from APRA on how they would actually set these benchmarks. Like, because it's easy to think off the top of your head, okay, they'll just take the index and then, I don't know, maybe drop a few percentage points off that. And if you underperform it by that much, no more new members, all right? Yeah. But like you say, there can be high variance strategies that could be like leveraged and make sense for people early. Like superannuation is locked up for over 30 years. It can make sense to have a lot of leverage in the first 15 of those 30 years, right? And get the most risk-reward benefits, yep. which could mean that, you know, you underperform in one year versus that standard benchmarked index fund by like 20 percentage points, <laughs> but then you exceeded by like yeah, 40 yeah. percentage points. I mean, what's points? the yeah. famous, what's the big short guy? So the big short fund returned, I don't know, it returned annualized returns of like 40% over the lifetime, but that meant it lost money for like 10 years in a row and all the investors got really, really mad at them. And then it made a trillion T dollars during the GFC when his predictions finally turned out to be true. Yeah, so a little bit concerned by that. And the other main concern I had was these benchmarks don't even have to be financial. They can be yeah. whatever requirements the regulator decides to put in place. This is where I'm super suspicious. Like that actually concerns me a little bit. Yeah, I, it's not mentioned at all in the fact sheets. It's just sort of slipped in there in like subsection 6AB-2 or something like that. And it's just like, it can be anything. Let me just look it up in case anyone actually wants to look at the laws. Maybe I should uh, send a note to my local member of parliament. Oh, I thought you were going to say to your PA to do extra research for this podcast. So it's section 60D-2-B. Man, I've always been a section 60B-2-C guy myself, but you know, <laughs> go on. Regulations made for the purposes of subsection 1 may specify requirements in respect of any other matter. Any other matter. So like, sure, in a reasonable world where we've got people we like running these functions and you know, the deep state bureaucrats are all working in our best interests. Most of my friends are deep state bureaucrats. <laughs> yeah, well, Canberra. <laughs> sure, I can trust that that'll mostly be fine. But I can also think of scenarios where like there's government capture and that's really, really awful. APRA just goes straight into the treasurer. Yeah, I've always heard this complaint that like, oh, super's not really your money and the government's just going to go bankrupt at some point and they're going to confiscate it all. And rah, 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 why would I rely on super? You can't rely on that. You have to rely on I guess the old age pension, which is also the government. But anyway, this was before I read the Sviat mindset, all right? I just dismissed the most crazy <laughs> people who politically disagreed with me and ignored them. So shut up. 
But um, this really does seem to give the government that power, right? You know, you see it in America through Matt Levine, right? That the government is putting restrictions on banks that they're not allowed to judge oil or fossil fuel things unworthy of funding because of their new green finding the light. So they have to invest in oil. And so maybe one of the benchmarks that they come up in the next government is like, well, your fund didn't invest in enough oil or it invested in too much oil or you're only allowed to invest in solar panels or you can never invest in solar panels. Like it does seem like there's this gigantic, gigantic bucket of money. The Australian government can put substantial pressure on where that money goes then. Yeah, it's like I, uh, our benchmark says that you have to have 40% of your funds invested in coal. What? <laughs> what? That's what Australia does. We dig coal out of the ground and we ship it to China or we ship it to our own power plants. So that really concerns me. Like really genuinely because it just gives the, it really genuinely gives the government, like they raising taxes to invest in a coal mine is probably something that the government can't get away with politically. But putting tiny restrictions onto super funds gradually bit by bit feels like something they can get away with and really direct a huge, like, huge amount of money to wherever they want. Yep. So, mm, I'm glad I looked at the legislation for that. No evidence that they have yet. And maybe they, I don't know, maybe legislation written on the run is legislation under that. I haven't looked as deeply even as you because you're explaining it to me on this podcast. This is why I keep Brian around because he's actually capable of reading raw legislation rather than tweets summarizing headlines, summarizing (laughs) (laughs) the gist that was explained, which is about all I'm capable of. But yes, my understanding of how the legislation is being explained is that, yeah, the government can put whatever caveats they want and under performance, and then they can say you can't enroll new members anymore. That seems like too much power. Yep. Very concerning. The other thing, since you brought up Matt Levine, was another big part of this legislation is that it puts the onus or the burden of proof on the super funds if anyone ever brings like action against them to say that you weren't acting in the best interests of your members, like in the financial interests of your members which just feels like that is a huge push towards everything is securities fraud. Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah, everything is securities fraud. I mean, the point, like, it's, it just seems like, like you know, I can be a bit conspiratorial that, you know, the government's going to say I'm only allowed to invest in coal or solar panels. It'll be depending whether it's a Greens government or a Liberal government at the time. But I'm only allowed to invest in one particular power source. That may be a bit excessively conspiratorial. But it does really seem like they're saying you can only invest in index funds is what you can do. You're not allowed to have active strategies anymore. And maybe that's correct. Yeah, I mean, and this doesn't apply to uh, self-managed super funds or funds with m- really? below five members. So, that's good. you know, I mean, that's if you want to break out of the system, you can go nuts. And maybe that makes that more okay if they're forcing them into just basic index funds. I don't know. but That does mm. feel more like a nudge in the nudge unit economics kind of way, in that, that you, you really have to go out of your way to do these high-variant strategies, that you still can. It's still legal to invest in weird and wonderful things, but you have to do a lot of paperwork to prove that you're invested and smart enough to do such things. And everyone yeah. else just gets in boring index funds. Yeah, Maybe, maybe I don't hate that. I mean, I'm only invested in boring index funds. It seems like a good investment to me. Me too. It lets me think much more about what I'm going to say on the podcast rather than trying to manage my assets. 100% that. That is most of the reason why I've got my boring investment strategy. Yep. Cool. All right. So your super, your future. There's some weird stuff in there. There's some concerning stuff in there. Hopefully in the second draft, they fix those little bugs. Well, thanks for that topic, patron. Thank you. And now we have to thank all our patrons because we have so many of them now. It's fantastic. I love it. So, you know, thanks to all our patrons. We've still got nine, although the episode where I begged someone to be the 10th has only gone live like 12 hours ago as we're talking. So, you know, maybe I, I'm going to beg again. I'm going to beg. I want a 10th <laughs> patron. Please, I want to hit the double digits. I'm going to, I'm on my knees right now. Um, I'm actually begging. But possibly we'll get it before this episode goes live, in which case you can be the 11th. That's fine. I'll let you. He's not actually on his knees if he got uh, on his bro, knees. You ruined it. Now <laughs> the they're going to know I'm a liar. <laughs> 
<laughs> now they're going to know I'm a liar. And I've just been making up everything I've said on this whole podcast. Wait a minute. You're not actually Australian. <laughs> I didn't even have a superannuation account or an index fund. Uh, yes. Thank you so much, patrons. Your topics will continue Chris and my conversation for years to come, I'm sure. It gives us plenty to talk about. The second half of this podcast is also a patron topic. So I think that's nice. It's nice that we can talk about what these guys are interested in. We've got a little growth bump. We posted ourselves on a subreddit somewhere. So if you're a new listener, wherever you've come from, it's lovely to have you here. If you want to share us with your friends or if you want to find, you know, if you've got a niche, if you've got a Twitter feed that you, you can share us on or somewhere where you think that our style of discussion would be interesting to people, it does seem like we get a few listeners there and people are enjoying us. So Yeah, thank you so much. And do reach out to us. You can get us at podcastaffix at gmail.com or affixpodcast at gmail.com. We've got a Discord that I don't think we've had a link to in the last many, many, many weeks. I think we might have put it up once. And you can just look for us on Reddit. That's the contact dates. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, y'all. All right, we're doing a two-section podcast this time. We've gotten bored of doing two sections because it's too hard to come up with topics and we've only got a list of like 15 things we want to talk about in the future and we'll never ever get to any of them. But uh, we're going to do two this time. So this is another patron request. Just a discussion on the topic of free will. We had no choice. <laughs> I mean, maybe this is part of the discussion, <laughs> right? Just a small one, just a light little snackette before we hit into the heavy news of Diablo 2. You know, do we have free will? What is free will? Does it exist? Is it an illusion? <sighs> Explain yourself in six words or less, please, Brian. All right. So there's, <laughs> we've had this topic kicking around for at least a month at this point. And it just keeps getting put off, even though, like, we love the patron topics. Oh, free will. Just <laughs> this is why it's taken us four weeks to get to it. So my problem with free will is <laughs> I think it's a really dumb question to ask. Okay, sure. <laughs> like, what difference does it make if you have it or not? So, so here's, here's where I like making fun of discussions of free will, because apparently that's your instinct to start. So maybe that's all this discussion will be. But... <laughs> I think free will turns, I mean, heavily our moral choices and moral deserts depend heavily on whether we have free will or not. If we're just robots, like very self-aware robots, but just watching a show and we murder someone, then it's not really our fault that we murdered someone because there is no free will. We were inevitably destined since the first birth of the universe to kill that person. So retribution should be minimal or none because, you know, there's no choice. So there's no crime to punish. That's what it got. And I've seen this debate on the internet where we should punish criminals less half. Like they're making a really impassioned argument to convince the people who they assume have free will that the, the, that the criminals murdering yes. people don't have free will and therefore we shouldn't punish them. And I'm like, if we don't have free will, this discussion doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for addressing that because that is my biggest frustration. Like, I don't know, a couple of months ago, there was an interview with Steven Pinker I listened to and he kind of espoused that view. And I'm like, what are you talking about, Steven Pinker? If there's no free will, then there is no morality. Like, what does it matter? There's no just desserts because there's no decisions to be made. It just happens. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the argument would be they cannot help but espouse these views again because they don't have free will. <laughs> but I'm like, why, why are you espousing these views that we don't have free will? That, yeah, it's, it's incoherent. Yeah, I think uh, that's probably my biggest problem with these discussions on free will. Yeah. Oh yeah, we should treat people more kindly because they have no choice. Okay, but I don't have a choice to treat them more kindly. Yeah, and you can't convince me to treat them more or less kindly because you don't have free will. Because yeah. I don't have free will. And then even to go like a level up from that and not necessarily tie it to free will, it's like, okay, you should treat people more instrumentally. Great. Well, incentives matter. So, 
you know, reward and punishment systems still have a place. Now, punishment, increasing the intensity of punishment doesn't necessarily dissuade people more from doing something. Yes. Probability of them being caught seems to. Yes. But at the same time, it still has some impact. Like, And also, this is just one thing that I want to get out on the record because it's a thing that I've never seen anyone say, but it seems like it underlies so much of the law generally, which is the reason that we enforce the law is so that the citizens don't enforce the law themselves. That's an interesting point. Yes. Making it's a- like we don't want to rely on retribution or personal revenge as no, a legal framework. Like go badly quite quickly. So anyway, just wanted to get that out there. It doesn't really relate to free will, but it's just something that always comes, pops into my mind when I'm thinking about these things. Yes. I don't know. Someone told me, it's like, what if your child was the one killed? Then you'd want the death penalty. And I'm like, that's exactly why the decision shouldn't be up to me as an individual citizen. Because yes, I'm pretty sure I would. Yeah. Yeah. This is why we take someone, you know, one or two levels removed to make these decisions, not someone in the fit of absolute rage and terror and in their most heightened emotional state imaginable. Yeah. So <sighs> justice. Justice. Justice versus retribution and keeping all parties somewhat satisfied, if not completely. It's a tricky balance. So free will, free will in general. All right, here's the other part on free will that I think is actually interesting. So I got my frustrations out on the side. Yeah, your frustrations are interesting. But like here's a part on free will that I find interesting about myself and my own introspection. There's this paradox called Newcomb's Paradox. And essentially what it boils down to, and I know I'm personally really bad at explaining things, so apologies to everyone. I'm sure Chris will step in. (laughs) I'm nodding. (laughs) (laughs) imagine there's an alien just lands on earth one day and he sets up a tent or whatever and sets up this proposal and beams it out to everyone i've got two boxes one is completely transparent and you can see there's a thousand dollars in there there's another box that is opaque so you can't see through it whatsoever and there is either one million dollars in there or there is zero dollars in there and if this alien has predicted that you will only take the opaque box that you can't see what's inside, there will be a million dollars in there. If he's predicted that you will take both boxes, there will be zero dollars in there. And and it's done the next day. So he's, he's doing the prediction yep. and he's setting this up all on a Tuesday. And yep. then you're going to walk into the tent on Wednesday and make your decision. Yep. So it's all set up there, ready to go. And, you know, you get to the tent and then he looks at his watch and he's got some alert from the intergalactic authority. And he's like, oh, sorry, got to run. Do you pick up both boxes? Do you pick up one box? What are you going to do? Sure. And so the paradox, I guess, is that like it's already been set, that it cannot change. You taking both boxes can't change the fact of what's in there. So you're just going to get $1,000,000. It's more money. You can see that there's more money right for the taking. You know, your choice now can't change his decision in the past. But, you know, if he's a perfect predictor, then he's predicted that you make this decision. So what do you do? Yeah, exactly. It's like... Am I the kind of person who would only take one box and then I'd take that opaque box only and then have $1,000 in there? Well, if I am that kind of person, then I better just take both boxes because then I get $1,000,000, $1,000. Exactly, if I take both, that's what he's predicted. Yeah, exactly. So it's like where this becomes a weird thing for me is reflecting on it is like I am just a one box person and I just cannot get why because it is so like contingent on there not being free will and the universe being deterministic. Yeah, It's like if someone can perfectly predict my actions, then I don't actually have free will. But I'm also willing to like go into a scenario and be like, well, you know what? A thousand people before me did this and he was right every single time. I'm probably going to go with what I'm experiencing. 
Yeah, yeah. I also would be a one boxer. I mean, partly because an un. 0.1% increase on my total return doesn't really do a lot for me, which I think is yep. part of the problem. But yeah, I don't know. Also, just because I question my free will a lot. Yeah. yeah. It's, partly it's free will. By the end of the day, I believe in free will. Partly it's also, and this is, people have previously asked, where do Chris and Brian differentiate? Where do they disagree? And I think like, I don't actually believe in the supernatural, but I think I am more inclined to believe in the supernatural than Chris. Mm, okay. Yeah, I have close to zero belief. I like to think, anyway, if I was to like run into a situation that seemed excessively supernatural, I would update more quickly to believe the supernaturality of that situation than Chris would. Possibly. I'm pretty sure I heard a ghost once and I still don't believe in it. Well, there you go. There like you you're go. a fake ghost. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. It's just, this is why Chris is definitely an atheist and I am still agnostic. Are you still agnostic? Are you really? Yeah. Yeah, I'm almost as hard an atheist as you can be, I would say. I was even told repeatedly after April died that, oh, you'll hear her, you'll feel her. And I'm like, I feel the memory of her, and I can imagine exactly what she would say in certain circumstances, but I don't believe that that's her ghost talking to me. I just think that's fond memories. Yeah, there you go. That's very beautiful. But yeah, no, so that's just a amusing little thing. This is why I was happy to talk about the superannuation stuff, because I feel like I have more to say about that than... Sure. <laughs> I mean, I only got jokes here. I mean, I can I can channel Sam Harris a little bit. So he doesn't even believe in a self as such. He takes a lot of LSD and he's a neuroscientist and he's a guru and he meditates a lot. And he thinks there is no ego. So once you take LSD, it is common to report a death of an ego where you just feel at one with the universe and there is there is no you. And he believes that this is quite literally true, that the you that you feel you are is imaginary. It's not real. It's just an illusion constructed inside your brain. And I was trying to listen to his podcast that probably kicked off this patron's question because I know he listens to Sam Harris. There you go. The example that he gives of like free choice is I want you to I want you to think of a movie right now. Just think of any movie. And yep. like this is probably the freest choice you've ever had, but like where did that choice come from? It must have come from somewhere. You couldn't preempt it. You couldn't change it. But the movie that you thought of, like did you think of The Wizard of Oz? No. Why not? Yes. Did you choose not to think of The Wizard of Oz? No. I'm like, this is the most free choice you've had today, I reckon. Like, you know, what you had for breakfast, when you went to work, what calls you took are all more constrained than this choice of me asking you to, not even your favorite movie, just think of a movie. You know, it is the most free of your possible will that you could possibly choose. And yet, you know, you didn't choose The Wizard of Oz and you can't really explain why. Well, that thought just popped into your brain and you might have thought of a few before settling on your final decision. You might have been like, ah, oh, bad boys, ah, oh, The Matrix. Uh, but, you know, where did those thoughts come from? Yep. That's an interesting point. I think viewing yourself as constrained is not necessarily the abolition of freedom, but like, yeah. Anyway, I'm trying to figure out a, a better way to phrase that. Just because you have some constraints doesn't mean you are not free. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're definitely constrained. You, you were never going to think of a movie that you'd never heard of, you know, the yeah. third Bollywood movie ever made that sold <laughs> 10 tickets or whatever. You didn't. You were never going to think of that one because you couldn't possibly. But you also yeah. didn't think of hundreds or thousands of movies that you have heard of, uh, yeah. but you just didn't because... But why, right? You're not choosing. Yeah. Who's choosing? What's choosing? Oh, and there's so many autonomous actions in your life as well, or just like quote-unquote decisions, but you don't really have a choice as well. Or if it played out again and again and again across multiple worlds, you'd still make that choice regardless. Yep. But again, I think a lot of that, or my personal view on that is a lot of it is in some situations you're constrained, in some situations you are still exercising will. I don't know how to frame it. My biggest challenge with this or getting my head around it is trying to make it compatible with the famous Descartes aphorism, I think therefore I am, like... 
in the face of radical doubt, all that you can really trust is your own existence. And if you're calling into question your own existence or saying it doesn't exist, what are you left with? Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, this is exactly Sam Harris's argument. He's got some interesting podcasts on them. I'll probably link them in the show notes. But he thinks neither does he think nor is he. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so I guess, I mean, so I guess that confirms Descartes, right? I think therefore I am. <laughs> Sam Harris doesn't think and therefore is not. Yep, interesting point. So I will say the only last point that I want to make, and we've talked around this topic without really addressing it head on because it's a weird topic that's hard to talk about. But like, I think acting that you have free will is really important. I think if you always just go with the flow and think that you can't impact anything, you won't, right? It's only when, when you think that you have free will and can change your circumstances that you will actually be able to do that. Yes, I think uh, even if it is not real, it is a necessary delusion. Yeah, so I think I often have that delusion and try to change my circumstances, but... Yeah, it's hard to say where that delusion came from. Was it my free choice to decide that I could change the world or not? I don't know. I don't know, but I'm going to choose to believe that it is. And that'll do. <laughs> All right. Well, Brian thinks so he is. Chris is less sure. All right. Well, I hope you all had the ability to choose whether that was good or not. And I hope you don't have the ability to choose whether you're subscribed to this podcast. It's no longer <laughs> within your free will power. You will be constrained. <laughs> Press the little plus button on your podcast player and then we'll get automatically downloaded and every Sunday Chris will be really happy as he watches the numbers get bigger. I love watching the numbers get bigger. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And you know what else? It's coffee bedtime. It's coffee bedtime. I feel like you're getting like progressively higher and higher with your notes. I've been practicing. I've copy. been practicing to increase my range. I, I go to singing lessons. I was at a singing lesson just before I recorded this and I do specific practice to try to increase my range upwards. So thank you for noticing. Well, there you go. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> inflation. We can't. I can't get away from it. It's just in the news everywhere at the moment. And so I want to make a bet not on inflation but related. I was reading a piece by Noah Smith on the pandemic UI that is in the US at the moment is causing the job market to quite constrain. So the unemployment insurance benefit that the American government is paying at the moment is actually considerably more than the minimum wage. So you can stay at home and not work and get more money than going back to your job that you hate at a restaurant or wherever. And that means that a lot of people don't want to go to their jobs that they hate at their restaurant. And they sort of know, then this is not a universal basic income that everyone knows it's limited. So there does seem to be a view that like it's nice to take a holiday and I can have some paid time off for the first time in my life because no one in America ever gets time off. So I'm just going to milk this until I can't anymore. How long does it go for? Like, is it indefinite or is it only for no, a period? I believe it's period? another three months from now. I think it's time bounded, but I don't think it's no matters when you started. I think it's just it's all going to run out in about three months. I believe. Got it. I could I could be a hundred percent wrong on those details, but it is not designed as a universal basic income, and it is expected to expire this year soonish, but it has not expired yet. Yep. So the obvious response to we can't hire anyone at the wages we want is we're going to increase wages so that we can actually encourage people back to work. And so I want to bet on what the median wage in the US will be in uh, January 2022 as a percentage of what it is today. Will this UBI put upwards pressure on wages? And that could be good or bad, right? I say inflation because I'm like, if everyone's doing the exact same work in the exact same businesses, but they're all getting paid more, then those businesses are just going to charge more. And this is how the inflation starts. This is the catalyst that I keep talking about, where we get into an unavoidable cycle of inflation. And then everything gets more expensive. So everyone demands pay rises. So they get the pay rises and then everything gets more expensive. And then we get back to the 70s. Yep. Yep. 
Yep, yep, but yep. wages are sticky, and it does seem like there's a lot of businesses that are unwilling to increase wages because they know wages are sticky, and if they hire a bunch of people who they used to pay $10 an hour and they pay them $20 an hour, it's going to be impossible to say, well, pandemic insurance is over, so your wage is $10 an hour again because they'll all quit and get real mad and lots of tears will be shed and it will be bad news for everyone. Yeah, like that's the interesting thing in some of these observations currently being written about on the internet or spoken about on Planet Money. A few firms are using starting bonuses as like the makeup for that so they don't lock themselves into like a long-term higher wage but they just pay people a heap of money at the start to get them to join so like amortized over those few months and it work out the same but doesn't lock them in for the long term yep that's interesting i hadn't heard of that that's a good idea because that seems to be the fear yeah so the bet is will the fear of sticky wages and high uh keep everyone keeping wages suppressed or will people eventually have to cave and it's like we really need the staff they're out there and able to work we're going to increase wages yeah like my concern with using median wage as the measure for this is the pandemic hit low-paid workers the hardest so that's going to be a drag as they like come back to the workforce yeah yeah if everyone at the 40th percentile and below gets a pay rise then the median wage doesn't actually change unless anyone kicks over from 40 to 50 but plausibly it moves not at all i know there is a huge shift at the low end of the market yeah exactly or similarly like if wages at the low end of the market increase but then a whole heap more people join the lower end of the market from being previously unemployed, that will distort where the median wage lies so it can actually drag it down. Yep, that's fair. This is a tricky thing to bet on. What measure would be suitable? <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm talking about. You know what yeah, I Yeah, I know exactly on. what you're talking uh, about. What would be a suitable metric that we could track that would, would determine this for us? You could just do it in the quartiles, I guess. Yeah, that would be, yeah, the, the 25% quartile. Yeah. Whether that goes up or stays the same, or you know, if we both think it goes up, how much it goes up? Yeah, I think I think we're both aligned that yeah, the bottom quartile or you know the twenty fifth percentile, yep, that is going to increase. But how much is it going to increase? I don't really have a feel for it off the top of my head. What do you reckon? Mm, I mean, I've been the inflation bull, I guess. Yeah, you've been so definitely like I need on to the take side. the high side. Although I'm sort of doubting myself now, so maybe I need to hedge my bet and like <laughs> win a coffee on this when I inevitably lose a coffee on inflation. Yep, seems reasonable. So I would say it only moves, I don't know, how much does it move on a year-by-year year basis? Do you have that that amount? So currently we're tracking at just over four. Just over four. All right, I'm going to be... I take the high side of five, I reckon. Yeah. I reckon then that would be the highest wage growth we've seen since 2003 for yep. any quartile. Which is huge. Which is huge coming out of a pandemic which destroyed a huge amount of wealth. Yep. But labor markets are tight. The government's pumping money in there. And, you know, like they did have the dot-com crash around 2001 and it was higher then. Yes, which you can see, which you can see. And it was higher, yeah, prior to the dot-com crash, you're right. So, yeah, would five be enough for me? Am I just buying into the hype that I would want? I think I kind of want to take the higher side of that bit. You want to take the higher side? Uh... What about six, which is where it was on the dot-com crash? Where would you go there? No, I'd go the low side there. You'd so the somewhere between. Six. So five and a half would seem the average of those two numbers. If I can, let me just get an Excel spreadsheet out. <laughs> yeah, sure. Five and a half, I'll take either. You can flip a coin and decide what side yes. I'm on. All right, I'll take the high side just to stay on brand, I suppose. <sighs> okay. Well, you really wanted to hedge, didn't you? <laughs> no, I'm not hedging. Like I feel like I want to give you the opportunity to hedge. Like This nah. would be a hedge for me if I went the other way. But <laughs> All or nothing. All, All right. or nothing. <laughs> Radio, we're doubling down on inflation. All right, cool. All right. Uh, by when? First quarter next year? Yep. Yeah. Done. First quarter next year. 
Right. Now, this seems to be monthly. So, do we want to just choose like a month in that quarter? Oh, sure. Or do we want to like open the range and it could be any of the months in that quarter? Any of the months in the first quarter of next year. How's that? All right, done. Lock done. it Done. Good deal. You can raise this one on Melange. I'll raise it on Melange. That means spice, did you know? I heard it on a podcast. <laughs> Very nice. Okay, so I have shattering Diablo news this oh, week. Has a world record been broken, finally? A world record has been set. Oh, as in the first person <laughs> to ever do something? And the reason why it is shattering is because it's the world record that I wanted to set. Oh, no. And the damn speedrunners got to it before I could. Oh, no. <laughs> did 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 you try trying? No, I actually, like, I did a little bit of practice for it, but I actually oh. just needed to do, like, I needed two clear days to actually try it because I was just going to do the Stacy strategy of just take, like, 48 hours to do a speedrun. What? Explain the Stacy strategy to me. So, the record itself was the Players 8 Hell Paladin run, which no one had ever done before. And the Stacy strategy is... Stacy has currently got the hardcore and softcore players eight druid speedruns, and they're both over fifty hours because he just played through the game and streamed the whole thing. Like he went to work, he went to sleep, and he came back oh, and finished them. Right, nice, nice. So this is not fifty hours of solid play. This is fifty hours of the camera staying on, but his character sitting in town a bunch. Yeah, exactly. All right, and all that right. was going to be like my strategy to like finally get my own Diablo world record. But alas, yeah, I love it. This weekend gone. There was yet another race. There was a race between Indrek, Ryo Kesakotl, 327, and Elisi Raptor. And Elisi Raptor, following on from last week, is actually a female Diablo runner. So there you Ooh. go. But Ryu came through with the goods this time. So it's been a long time since Ryu's had a world record. I think he's had zero world records for two years now. Oh, oh how the mighty can fall. <laughs> Indeed. It was honestly nice to see him come back and, you know, he got an early lead and kind of kept it throughout the whole game even though he doesn't know some of the hacks that would really help. So oh, right. we've talked about previously in the last six months, there was a new technique for skipping bail waves. Ryu doesn't know that technique, but he still managed to keep his lead. Wow. Even in players eight where the enemies oh, so are extra so impossible to team doing kill. This. They were all racing each other. Yeah. Oh, I misunderstood. Oh, cool. So players eight is you just type a command in and it makes all the enemies like have much, Got it. much more health and they hit you harder. I feel like I knew that. Yep. So Ryu got it done in just over seven hours, which is unbelievable. Like, right. my planned time for it was going to be like 37 hours. Okay. So, you know. I was going to ask if it was done with a Stacy strategy and I'm like, I know that you've had nights without sleep. I reckon you could do just like a slightly less Stacy strategy. <laughs> Are the Stacy world records still there? Could you out Stacy Stacy? I could. I could. Uh, recently, Kano was trying to beat them just because Kano was frustrated by the fact that there's this 56 hour world record. Uh, but he glitched out in the chaos sanctuary in hell so he'd been running it for eight hours and he's just like my hand hurts screw this oh is it on hardcore so you can die forever yes or is it yeah it is right okay All so right. he's got he's actually got it on both but yeah so anyway the paladin record is no longer there for me to set <laughs> i want you to get a world record i want to have a world record holder on this podcast i have no world records nor any ambition to get any i want you to live my dream we've had one world record holder on we've had macro bio boy oh yeah okay. for the pacifist right. paladin but it would be nice for one of the hosts to be a record holder, yes, that's for that's sure. that's the dream. That is the dream. So, heart's broken, but <sighs> uh, entertaining runs. The other entertaining thing about this was, was Mother's Day just gone. 
I was at my parents' place and I chucked Twitch on the TV and started watching it. My brother-in-law like came into the room. I'm like, I can put it on the footy for you if you want, mate. Like, you don't have to watch this. He's like, no, nah, no, nah, the footy will be too stressful for me. No. So I'm like, okay, cool. We'll watch Diablo. And then about three minutes later, he was swearing at his phone because he was streaming the footy on his phone. <laughs> <laughs> he was me thinking that story was going to end with him getting super into Diablo speedrunning and getting real stressed out. <laughs> Alas, I can't quite convert anyone. You'll work them over eventually. Eventually. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks for hanging out with us this week, folks. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you later. Bye. All right, well, Brian thinks so he is. Chris is less sure. Oh, you think plenty, I'm sure. Oh, unless you're just a simulation. We never even got into the simulation oh argument. Oh, my God. Like. All right, check it on the show notes for future episodes. <laughs> <laughs>